0: On several occasions throughout the Old Testament, God describes himself as a jealous God. Aaron mentioned that this morning. Uh, Exodus 20 is the first place we see that. You shall not worship other gods, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Right there in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34, 14. You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4. For the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, it goes on in Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Nahum, and, uh, and Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. What is going on here? Is God some kind of narcissist who can't stop thinking about himself? The fact that that God is jealous, and he's right to be jealous. He's right to be jealous for our exclusive worship. For us to demand glory to be given to our name would be selfish and prideful because we are lesser than God. There is someone greater than us. So for us to demand worship of ourselves would be utterly foolish and idolatrous, but not for God because there is no one greater than God. And so he has the right to demand our exclusive worship and to be jealous for it for glory to be ascribed to his name. If he were to deflect glory to someone or something else, then he would be idolatrous. And so it's right for God to, de- to demand and to pronounce glory, uh, his own glory. The story of God in Israel is a sad one. Listen to Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king because they refused to return to me. Here God has this picture of Israel like a small child that he, he weans and cares for, teaches them to walk, and yet they turn away from him, and he continually goes after them and pursues them and cares for their wounds, and they don't even know or care that he was the one who did that. And so what I'd like to look at tonight is going to be in Isaiah 45. We're going to start in Philippians 2, but we're, we're going to make it our way to Isaiah 45. You can turn to Philippians 2 to start with, though. And what I think that we'll see in Isaiah 45 is that all of history is moving to a day when God will be seen as the only true God. That God is desiring and pursuing our exclusive worship and our recognition, even unbelievers, their recognition of his worth. So let's start in uh, Philippians 2. And I can't make any promises about the length of this sermon. I know there must have been a memo that went out about a Jerry Savinsky-length sermon today or something, but um, I can't can't make any promises. Philippians chapter 2. Notice in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God... This verse shows Jesus' authority and universal power over all creation and that one day he will be seen as the one and only true God. Everyone will have to acknowledge it either because they have bowed the knee to to him or because they're forced to. Every single person will bow the knee to, to Christ and acknowledge him as Lord. We will do so willingly as well as countless believers throughout the ages. Others will do so, countless billions will do so because they have been defeated by him. This reality that God is the exclusive creator and savior of the world is extremely dear to the heart of God. And he longs that every single person made in his image would acknowledge his worth and acknowledge that he alone is God. We start to get an idea that God is concerned about his own fame in Exodus. He says to Pharaoh and to Moses and to the whole world and about the whole world that he wants to be known as the Lord. Listen to Exodus 6, 7. Here, God wants Israel to know that God was the Lord. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But God didn't just want Israel to know that he was the Lord, the exclusive God, the deliverer. But he wanted the Egyptians to know as well, didn't he? Because he would tell Moses, when you go to Pharaoh, tell him this. I want the Egyptians to know. This is Exodus 7, 5. He does this in several other places as well. That the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. But it's not just Israel, and the Egyptians, God wants the whole world to know. Ezekiel 17, 24, and all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. Now this is, I take this as a metaphor, not as the the literal trees that we see outside, but, but those trees that God has raised up, those leaders, those rulers of the nations, all of the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I will bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, make the dry tree flourish, I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. So the reason that uh, I, I wanted to take us to this passage in Isaiah, you can turn there now, Isaiah 45, is because as I was reading through the scripture multiple times over the last several years, um, came across this phrase, and you will know that I am the Lord. What, what is God so concerned about? Why, does he, why is he so concerned that people will know that he is the Lord? his own people, his enemies, all the nations. This phrase, you will know that I am the Lord, is used 85 times in the Old Testament. 33 times, as far as I can tell, is referring to believing Israel. 18 times is referring to wicked Israel, that wicked Israel would know that God is the Lord. Someday that they're going to turn a corner and recognize, like Zechariah says, we've looked on him whom we have pierced. Two times, it's referring to Israel's future generations. And then the other 33 times are referring to the nations. Ezekiel has tons of them that are focused on all the various nations that are opposed to God, that have their own gods. God desires that they know that God is the Lord. And if you look in the context of each of these 85 references, most often it's referring to the the content of what he wants them to know It's in the context of God judging them, judging the wicked and giving victory to his people. A couple of times it's used to show that Israel would learn something, learn how to trust him. So I'm allowing you to go through these things so that you will know that I am the Lord and that I am worthy of your trust. But this here in Isaiah 45 is perhaps the clearest reference to this idea and how it connects to the rest of human history. I love this chapter because it shows the heart of God and it links the unbelief of Israel at this time in history and the unbelief of the nations to the future time that we just read about in Philippians 2, when Christ will be exalted as the savior of the world. When all people will know that God is the exclusive God and all the other gods are nothing. That God is the creator and the savior of the world. And one day it will be unmistakable by all. No one will be able to say, no, that's not true. Now, the historical period that we're considering tonight is the eighth century BC, about 150 years before the exile. And, And yet this serves as an example for all of history, including today, and really points to the consummation of history when there's going to be an examination made of the deeds of Israel and God's constant and undying pursuit of them. And Judah is going to find out that God is going to send them into exile and Judah would expect that God would still deliver because there is a promise after all to Israel that God would deliver them. And if Judah had it their way, they would say God has to deliver through a hero from our own country, like a David or a Moses. That's not how God's going to do it. Instead, he's going to do it through a pagan king named Cyrus. That's how God was going to surprise them. So let me read the first 13 verses. We'll look at the whole chapter, but I'll just start with the first 13 just to get an idea of what's going on here. And we'll walk through it together. Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before me and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord the God of Israel who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I've also called you by your name. I've given you a title of honor. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you're making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about things to come concerning my sons and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So here, God chooses a deliverer for Judah who is unlikely in terms of what they would expect. And so God does something unexpected here in these first seven verses. He speaks directly to Cyrus, a king who's not yet born. And he calls him in chapter 44, verse 28, my shepherd. A man who apparently, as far as we know, would never turn to God. And God says, you're my instrument. You're going to lead my people out of Babylon back to the land of promise. And so this message is addressed to Cyrus, but really designed for Judah to overhear and be convinced that God delivers and he does it on his own terms. This is especially amazing since Cyrus was still 150 years away from being born and Judah hadn't even been taken into exile yet. And here's God's promise to Cyrus. I'm gonna deliver my people and I'm gonna do it in a way that makes my name known that all the world, that all of Israel would know that I am the Lord. And he does it for three reasons. First in verse three, he wants Cyrus to recognize who commissioned him. I will give you the, the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth so that you may know. This is that idea that, that you will know that I am the Lord. I want you to see this. And I don't think this requires Cyrus to be converted just as it didn't require Pharaoh to be converted in Exodus. So the Pharaoh would know. The Egyptians would know. This generates a lot of questions about God using evil people to accomplish purposes, his purposes. But really, this is part of the point. Just as God chose Israel, nothing special in Israel, he also chooses Cyrus to be part of his plan. And a means of Israel's deliverance It's not their concern, how they would be delivered. They they might like to kind of come up with a plan on their own. God's saying, I got it taken care of. I'm going to take care of it in a way that's unexpected. But the second reason that God chooses Cyrus is found in verses 4 and 5, and that is that he wants to bless Israel through them. For the sake of, verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I've given you a title of honor. Verse five, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So I, I will gird you though you have not known me. Cyrus, you don't understand what's going on here, but you're being used as, as an instrument so that my people would be blessed. My people would be delivered. And he can make such a claim because he is the Lord and there's no one like him, verse five. The third reason that he chooses Cyrus is because God wants the whole world to know that He alone is God. Verse six, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun. So as you picture the globe spinning and the light hitting each part of the globe, every time the sun hits a part of the globe, those people would know that God is the Lord. And there's something about the works of God and His power throughout history, as is displayed, that will show people. And it's unmistakable who the true and living God is. They will not be in a position to deny it. This is not about academic knowledge. This is so that all people will know that God is the true and living God and that he's not unjust in judging his people or his enemies. Now, clearly, we know from Romans 1 that people will suppress this truth but I would say that they may even try to suppress it while they're acknowledging it. While they're bowing the knee and acknowledging Christ is Lord. They will try to suppress it and come up with all sorts of reasons why this isn't true, but the fact is they'll have to acknowledge it. And here's the point for Israel and for us, that if we continue to try to form God into our desires, we try to manipulate him, and get him to do what he wants us to do, we will remain dead in our sins and on a pathway towards destruction. But, but the big truth that we're seeing tonight is that we don't find God after we've searched for him. God finds us. God discloses himself. He reveals himself to us. That's what has to happen. That's how you came to Christ. That's how he's going to make his name known to all people in all time. The Egyptians didn't find God. Israel didn't find God. God revealed himself to his people. And so for Judah, at this time, they needed to acknowledge that they're not God. Part of our challenge is that we start to get a little bit comfortable in this life as a Christian and sometimes start to take on some Maybe personal responsibility for the good things that have come to us, when in reality it's all of grace. And once we lay down our pretensions and our claims of self preservation, we're in a good spot for God to disclose Himself to us and to deliver us. So if God's going to deliver Judah through a pagan king, Why do this? Why can God deliver through a pagan king? And verse eight tells us it's because he's not just the Lord of Israel. He's the Lord of the universe. He can use any tool that he wants to accomplish what he wants, not just in his people Israel. And part of his purpose is to make his name known to all people from the rising of the sun all the way to its setting, the name of the Lord, will be acknowledged. Verse eight, I form light and create darkness. He causes calamity to happen. all of the the things that happen in the natural world, God stands behind them all. He stands behind every single event. And this may seem a little bit dissonant to you as you hear that, but it should be a comfort to you. Because nothing that comes into your life is a surprise to God. God stands behind it all. Every single difficulty that you've ever experienced, every loss, every natural catastrophe is all a part of the loving and sovereign hand of God to orchestrate his purposes for your good. So that you would know that he is the Lord. And that other people around you who see what's going on would know that he is the Lord. Of course, the alternative to God controlling all things, including in the natural realm, is that things are out of control. But there should also be a comfort to us that if he allows and plans and orchestrates all the events of the world, whether we see them as good or bad, It should also encourage us that he has the power to deliver. And he will. This is what Israel could not see. God was in control of Cyrus. God was in control of Judah's difficulty because he's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the universe. Any trouble that Israel faced is because of the Lord's permission. Therefore, any rescue that might happen is going to come from him as well. This is where they need to look. Uh, they're, they're in a quandary right now because it doesn't seem like it's working out too well. It seems like the better plan, like King Ahaz did with Israel, was to make an alliance with Assyria, the superpower who could help defend against these other nations that were warring against them. And... That wasn't the answer. The answer was to trust God and wait. Those two nations of Syria and Israel who are punishing you right now, Judah, they are like smoldering firebrands, Isaiah 7 and 8. They're like the last embers in the fire that are going to go out. Don't worry about them. I'm sending a deliverer. He's going to come through your people. We now know who that is. Israel wasn't ready for that. Judah wasn't ready for that. Notice in in verse eight that God does this in righteousness. So we don't have to question like, well, you know, it's kind of a little underhanded the way he's handling this whole, like uh, leading them into captivity and then the deliverance thing. No, it's all done in righteousness because God drips with righteousness. He is righteous. To question God's way for us, or for Judah, is as foolish as, verse nine, the clay questioning the potter. We are not in a position to stand in judgment of God and to say, like the clay might say to the potter, what are you doing? Why did you make me this way? The end of verse nine, or the thing you're making say he has no hands or could be handles there. Like you didn't make me with handles. You should have made me with handles. What were you thinking? Or verse 10, you know, the father having a child come to him and say, why are you begetting me? Or to the, the, the woman, to the child, to the woman, why are you giving birth to me? Why'd you do it this way? We, we can't say that to God because God is our creator. We have no basis or authority to speak to him in those terms. And if he chooses to use a pagan deliverer, then that's his prerogative. Notice how God is described in verse 11. He's described as Israel's Lord. Right there at the beginning of the verse, thus says the Lord. He's described as the Holy One, Israel's Holy One, and also as Israel's creator. So just as I raised you up, I'm gonna raise Cyrus up for my purposes. Or we could go back to, to Pharaoh. Just as I raised Pharaoh up, I did it for my purposes so that I would make my name known. And Judah's response was supposed to be that they would put their trust in God for his superior and unique ability to handle Israel's challenges. In verses 14 through 25, and really if we we went on into chapter 46, it would show that God is superior over idols. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you and they will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. I think this points forward for Judah to the end times. No longer is he talking about Cyrus, and I think the reason... I say that is because of verse 17. Notice verse 17, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated humiliated to all eternity. But I think what's going on here is Isaiah saying, there's coming a day, you gotta believe God. You gotta believe me. As I speak on behalf of God, there's coming a day when every nation will realize that God is the Lord no matter how powerful or rich or storied or how much military strength they have, all will recognize and all will bow the knee. Even though for centuries, these nations have denied God's existence and have tried to to make gods for themselves, there's coming a day when they will see God as the true and living God, the savior of the world. And Israel will be saved with an everlasting salvation. This text in verse 17 is repeated in Romans 9 and 10 by the Apostle Paul. That whoever puts their confidence in God will never be put to shame. and never will be disappointed. This is the appeal that God, like a jilted husband, is making to his adulterous wife. Israel, don't you see it? you put your confidence in me, you will never be disappointed. You will never be put to shame. You think that because there has been a a stronghold on you as a nation for a period of time, that their gods are better than me? You think that because there's some temporary setback, that those gods are better. So you start to turn over towards those gods. You adulterate yourself with them. There's coming a day when you will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord, the deliverer. And no one will be able to question it or be mistaken about it. It will be unmistakable. Because I am superior over idols, God says. Put your trust in me. You will never be humiliated. It's God who saves, not idols, verses 20 through 25. trust in false gods is ridiculous they can't do anything for israel look at verse 20 gather yourselves and come draw near together and you fugitives of the nations they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a god who cannot save declare and set forth your case indeed let them consult together who has announced this from of old who has long since declared it is it not i the lord And there is no other God beside me. There's none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Now, it's easy to get harsh on Israel, but consider where they were. God had given them a direct promise that he would shepherd them and deliver them. But they don't feel very shepherded or delivered right now. And the Babylonians are coming which seems to suggest that the gods of the Babylonians are more powerful than the God of Israel. And, God, and, and Isaiah here does something very interesting. He moves past the idea of who will deliver Israel, since we all know who will deliver Israel, it's God. The more crest, pressing question he asks here in verses 20 through 22 is who's going to deliver Babylon? They're carrying around their little idols that they made for themselves. Their gods are made of perishable material made by perishable people. You think they got a shot against me? Can you sense the jealousy that God has for exclusive worship and our full confidence to be put on him? How foolish of us to go after other gods See, Israel needed to see beyond the captivity to the larger work that God was doing, that he would deliver them and magnify his name in the process. And so their response and our response should be one of trust. I love verse 22 because this is where we would expect God to just come down with a harsh, straightforward, maybe harsh, not the right word, but maybe stern condemnation. But like he does in Psalm 2, he gives them an opportunity to repent. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. You've been going after all these gods, trying to make all these excuses for why things are the way they are, trying to give credit to all your blessings to these gods that don't even exist. And instead of God saying, You are judged and you shall be judged forever, he says, Come to me, all the ends of the earth. There's refuge in me. And verse 23 is perhaps the most helpful verse, and we think of this idea of God wanting to be seen as the only true and living God. I am God, there is no other. So that all the world would know that I am God. This connects it, I think, to Philippians 2, which is where. Paul alludes, he alludes back to here to Isaiah 45. He says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and, he, and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord. Notice that exclusivity there. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be, will be justified and will glory. Paul quotes this in Philippians 2 to show that Christ is the Savior who is exalted over all. There's no one greater than Christ. He also quotes it in Romans fourteen eleven in the context of believers being prohibited from judging each other since we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and everyone will give an account of himself to God. Everyone will bow. And verse 25, I think, points to the end times as well when the world finally admits that the gods are worthless and Israel's God is supreme. And when this happens, how is Israel going to respond? How are we going to respond? When, When all will bow the knee and acknowledge God alone is the Savior, Creator. They won't take glory in themselves we won't take glory in ourselves. We will have recognized that God was merciful to continue to pursue us and will glory in him for counting us to be righteous, even though we are far from it. And in the end, we and Israel will have nothing to boast about because we did nothing. It was all of God. Let me just make several points of application. We'll we'll wrap this thing up. First, there's only one God and he is working to make all people know that. There's only one God and he's working to make all people know that. I am God and there is no other. That's another good one to, to look at throughout the scriptures. There is none like God in heaven or in earth. No one can match his wisdom, power, and holiness. He is life in himself. He doesn't derive life from outside of him. He is wisdom. He doesn't derive wisdom from somewhere else. And he is all powerful. He doesn't derive power from outside of himself. Now, admittedly, we may not understand his ways, but that doesn't change who he is. He's got it all under control. None of your circumstances are floating out there somewhere where God's like, I got to figure out what to do with that thing. He is God alone. And he will be seen as such by all people. He's working to make that known. And in some sense, we might think, well, that's part of my commission to do that. And I would say, yes, that's true. But there's another sense in which he does it himself. He's going to make it happen. Secondly, it's foolish for us to act as if we know the best course of our lives apart from God. It's foolish for us to think that we know the best course for our lives. Israel couldn't make sense of their situation because they were looking at it myopically. They failed to remember the works of God in the past. They failed to remember the greatness of his attributes. They failed to remember his unmatched power and his faithfulness to his promises. And this is where we get ourselves in trouble, isn't it? We start to get short-sighted and to focus on our circumstances around us and forget the bigness of God. My God is so big, there's nothing that my God cannot do for you. We forget about his promises. We forget that he's got everything under control, even the, the bad things that are happening to me. God is responsible for everything in nature. Any bad conditions that exist in your life are not because some evil God thwarted the plans of a a grandfatherly God who only wants good for you all the time. Those conditions that we call bad are there because they're orchestrated by the hand of the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. He knows what's best for you. He knows what you can handle. He knows how to make his name known when, he delivers, known when he delivers you. Thirdly, God stands behind every event that takes place in your life. He stands behind every event that takes place in your life. Do you believe that? Is there something in your life that was a surprise to God? Is there something that's going on right now that God is reacting to? because he didn't plan it? I mean, not only does God know everything that's going on in your life, not only does he know the direction of your life, but he stands behind them. All the circumstances, your finances, your livelihood, your relationships, even your illness and your financial catastrophe, your broken relationships, your limitations, your losses, because he has planned them all for the good of your spiritual well-being. because he stands behind them all, you can be encouraged. Israel should have been encouraged. That their, both their demise and their deliverance was already planned out by God. So your struggles and your deliverances that are coming are also planned out by God. Down to the smallest of details, God never reacts. He is proactively working in your life and in our country and in this world to do exactly what he wants to do. And so our response ought to be to turn to him, to look to him for help and deliverance. And then finally, God often delivers through unlikely means so that there's no room for us to boast. God often delivers through unlikely means so that there's no room for us to boast. What does God want Cyrus to know and Judah to know and all the world to know? I alone am the Lord. What does God want you to know and our nation to know and your neighbor and the whole world to know? That he alone is God. In order for that to happen, he often uses unlikely means like he did with Cyrus. So that when we come to those events of seeming utter failure, and we come on the other side, God having delivered us, there's no room for us to stand and say, look what I did. There's nothing for us to boast about. When we take a measure of our lives and we look back at all the times that we were unfaithful to God and and yet God lovingly kept pursuing us and using us. Despite our sinful actions and sinful motives at times, we stand amazed at his grace and can't help but praise him for working through even the most unlikely of people like us. Listen to one scholar on this, John Oswald. He says, deliverance does not depend on the perfectibility on which the world's hope hopes rest, but on the grace and providence of God. When God delivers through unspectacular and unconventional means, it highlights his grace. And look at the death of Christ. We're going to reflect on that here in just a few minutes. Was there anything that was more unspectacular and unconventional in terms of our expectation of how God would bring about deliverance? what we would think of a conqueror and yet god is most glorified in that event of jesus being crucified for our sins friends christ has already won he's sitting at the right hand of god his work of paying for our sins is finished and his exaltation is coming soon in one day one day all will see him and know that he alone is the lord and that he is the judge and the savior of the world and the only proper response that we can have is surrender and worship let's pray father thank you for reminding us of the importance of uh, your exclusivity and your pursuit of us. Thank you for finding us before we found you and loving us before we loved you. We owe ourselves to you and we want to, to uh, honor you with our lives. The only proper response we have to you moving forward towards this plan of making your name known is to surrender ourselves to you to acknowledge your good plan, to trust you since we will never be disappointed when we do and to worship you. So please help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.